Welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be covering the story of Aaron Ralston, who got his arm stuck while canyoning in 2003. In order to free himself, he had to survive days in the desert before cutting his own arm off before going to safety. Before we jump in, just a reminder of follow me on Instagram. It's at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, and do rate or subscribe on whatever you're listening to. If you are listening to these, if you are kind of binging these episodes, you might remember that approximately 10 episodes ago, nine episodes ago, I said that this was season two, we were going to do 10 episodes, and then I was going to have a break. And to be fair, it's taken me a lot longer to do 10 episodes than I thought it would, but this is now episode 10 of season two, so it's the last one. I don't know when when I'll be back after this, hopefully uh, some point later this year. Uh, so yeah, just keep an eye out on the on the feeds and on the socials, uh, but do definitely still, still drop me a note on Instagram uh, or my email. Cool. So I am quite excited for this. I wanted to cover this one for ages. It's been on my list. It's been requested a few times. I knew some about some of the story, but not all of it. I hadn't seen the movie. I hadn't read the book. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting few weeks reading a lot more about it. Uh, we definitely haven't covered self amputation before, so that's a new topic for the pod. Uh, also, canyons, canyoneering, canyoning. Uh, we haven't touched on much either, so uh, it's going to be good to to cover both of those in a bit more detail because uh, it's definitely a type of climbing. And if you're listening to this, and I bet you're somewhat interested in that. Cool. So we'll talk a little bit about canyoning at the beginning. So what is a canyon? Question one. And so if we start with the basics. A canyon is defined as a deep cleft between cliffs, which has been formed due to the erosion caused by a river over millions of years. So I think the most famous canyon is is the Grand Canyon in America. Uh, And so imagine that on many different scales. So the land is flat. There's been a river flowing through it. uh, And through the years, that has eroded all the way down uh, to form a very interesting environment and that you're able to climb into it means that there's a few kind of key differences than than other climbing that we've talked about so they can be in hot areas and they often are so uh, they they're not just kind of cold mountains there's usually water involved because there usually is still a river somewhere as part of the canyon uh, which can add a whole nother layer of complexity to climbing. Um, and technically, you kind of climb down, right? So you climb down into the canyon before climbing back out of it. So, yeah, very, very similar in terms of the techniques you might use in terms of kind of rock climbing and rappelling and that type of thing. Uh, but there's also lots of different techniques that, that um, might be used for, for canyoning and different approaches, I would say. Yeah, so canyoning then is where you go and explore all of these kind of like different narrow gorges uh, within the canyon itself. There's lots of like different rock formations usually, lots of things, interesting things to see and lots of different, you know, different size and shape of obstacles to overcome, which is which people find very interesting. There is definitely a lot of similarities, like I say, to uh, what we've talked about when we talked uh, when we did rock climbing, when we did the the dorm wall, also when we talked about caving, 
So I think that that's quite similar as well. Uh, maybe not underwater cave diving as much, but but caving uh, when we did like the Thai cave rescue. Uh, so yeah, all, all kind of similar techniques. Uh, but I thought as that's what we talk about, what, what can go wrong with canyoning, uh, first of all? So first of all, similar to the others, but you're quite hard to rescue when you go canyoning. And that's because you generally, you're going down into tricky areas, you're going to areas where people can't just kind of like stroll, you know, people don't just stroll past and go, oh, oh no, you're hurt, let me help you. Uh, you're kind of in quite an isolated and, and tricky position. Uh, and it's hard for people to then get you out. Uh, it's also very hard to spot people in canyons because once you've kind of descended into them, it's hard to then be able to find where you've got to. Uh, so even if like a helicopter flies over, uh, the helicopter is never going to spot where you are because you're just kind of in in the depths. Uh, so yeah, similar to, similar to caving. There's also issues with water, uh, which again, similar to similar to some cave stuff, uh, especially around flash flooding. Uh, but they also have uh, a concept called whirlpooling, which is basically where they do get some water in, but then the water becomes very fast moving and kind of sucks you in and sucks you down like little little gorges and little areas, and that can cause a lot of issues. Um, and as I was doing the research, I came across uh, a very sad and a very notorious canyon accident, uh, which had happened in 1993, and it was called the Kolob Canyon Disaster. And this was basically where there was a group of three uh, leaders uh, taking kind of five teenagers with them to go canyoning in Zion National Park. And this was a well-known canyoning spot. Uh, the leaders had been canyoning there quite a few times. Uh, but they were advised when they entered the park that uh, that it was fine, that, you know, the water was at a manageable level. It was at a manageable speed in terms of how it was running. Uh, but by the time the group did descend into the canyon, what they found was that, that that was very much not the case. So the the water was moving much faster uh, and they didn't really know what to do at that point because obviously the water was doing things that they didn't expect it to do. Uh, and so they decided to carry on, which was definitely a mistake. So uh, at that point, one of the leaders went ahead to kind of scope out a pool of water, uh, but then got sucked down into it uh, because of, of, like I say, the whirlpooling forces that were happening. Another guide followed down to try and help him and, and free him, uh, but hit his head and died at that point. Uh, so the first guy did manage to get back out, um, but yeah, the the one of the guides uh, died at that point. The rest of the group then didn't really know what to do, but the what they do say is that generally with the canyon, the the way to get out is to go through. So they had to kind of continue on in the hope that they could then get out. So they carried on, but then unfortunately, when they did carry on, another uh, one of the leaders again jumped into some water to help sort uh, movement of where they were going but then uh, his pack got dislodged and he kind of instinctively jumped after it in order to kind of grab it uh, but unfortunately both him and the and the the backpack got sucked down into a whirlpool um, and then he didn't he didn't come back out so at this point there's just one remaining leader guide left uh, along with all the along with all the teenagers and they basically were like right all we've got to do now is just try and stay alive and wait for, for someone to come and rescue us. So they managed to last four nights and five days, um, basically like in the water. Uh, they 
they grouped together and they did have a little bit of land where some people could, could go out, uh, you know, a few, a few at a time and, and rest and huddle together and try and get some warmth. Uh, and, you know, luckily they had water, but they, you know, only had a tiny bit of food to share between themselves. But yeah, only after six days did they finally find the group and then they took them, uh, they got found and got taken out for safety. And so, yeah, so that's this is quite a well-known incident because the families then sued the national parks who had authorised the permits to do the canyoning uh, and they ended up settling and there was a lot of improved regulations in, in, the, in the industry, in the area, but it was, yeah, quite well-known at the time uh, and uh, meant more people were talking about canyoning than definitely had previously. Like I said, the other big issue then there is also flash floods. Uh, and flash floods are especially dangerous in canyons because the the rain might not be above you. So you might be expecting like, oh, well, it's sunny where I am, so it'll be fine. Uh, but similar to a cave, there could be heavy rain somewhere else. Uh, and then that could then lead to a flash flood in the, in the area that you were in. So it can happen very suddenly without warning. Then the last couple of issues, big dangers for for canyoning is is getting stuck. So you can often get stuck in what's called a pothole. Uh, and a pothole is basically a very big hole with smooth walls. Uh, and it's usually got water in the bottom of it. So it's quite easy to get stuck into because you can just kind of fall into it, into the pool, but then not be able to get yourself back out because the, the walls are so smooth. You can't pull yourself back up. Back up. Or uh, getting stuck in what they call a narrow slot, and a narrow slot is where there's like a long, thin, a long, thin hole, essentially like ravine. Uh, and they normally, when you climb that, you do something called chimneying, which is basically like if you think about if you're trying to climb up a chimney, you would use your arms and legs against each side, so it's it's thin enough that you can kind of climb up by just putting pressure on each side of the the hole that you're climbing up of. Uh, but that can be really dangerous because it, you can get stuck within the slot itself and then trying to chimney yourself out uh, is very strenuous. Like it takes a lot of energy in order to, to to climb out of it, which, yeah, can result in getting stuck. So it's, yes, a dangerous, dangerous sport, I would say, uh, but something that people very much enjoy. Like I say, it's very beautiful, very stunning. And yeah, it has lots of different different obstacles, different challenges as part of it, which which I think leads to the appeal. Let's get into our main story. Uh, I've got, I think maybe only one quote, but um, anyway, all the quotes and all the material is taken from Aaron Ralston's book, also of the same name, 127 Hours. So I'll talk more about the book at the end. So Aaron Ralston was born in uh, born on October 27th, 1975, uh, and he grew up in Colorado. And he was always really interested in the outdoors. Uh, he spent a lot of his life climbing and exploring and adventuring. He was he was that kind of guy. Uh, yeah, was really really enjoying enjoying nature. Uh, but he did he studied engineering through all of this and eventually did get a corporate job for a short while. Uh, whilst he kind of carried on doing his climbing, uh, but soon decided that that wasn't for him uh, and quit and started working in an adventure gear shop. 
And so, yeah, he was always into like big adventures, big, big missions. He really enjoyed climbing and he made it his mission to try and summit the 14 peaks in Colorado. So there were 14 big mountains in Colorado and it was his plan to summit all of them, uh, which is, yes, very difficult, but then also to summit all of them in winter which was something that had never been done before uh, and kind of gives you an idea for the types of types of challenges that he really wanted to take on uh, in terms of in terms of what he was doing he also climbed you know some of the big mountains that we talked about before uh, in terms of uh, over the other side of the world it's fair to say i think that he was always a bit of a risk taker in life which i think you kind of need to be if you enjoy these kinds of kind of sports and activities uh and before this kind of incident happened uh, earlier in his in his life he had had quite a few near misses so in one of the big climbs that he had done there ended up they ended up climbing up a, an avalanche prone slope which then did did end up in an avalanche uh, and then that basically almost killed him and his friends, but luckily they managed to get away with it. Uh, but yes, kind of fell out about it. In another one, in another story, he jumped into a river and got fully swept away by this river that he just randomly kind of jumped into uh, and almost drowned before his friends managed to throw him a rope. Um, and in another very questionable story, um, he was hiking when he was stalked by a bear who basically wanted all of his food, but he wanted his food, obviously, to keep him going. And the bear basically just like stalked him for for like days. Um, and he like spent a lot of time kind of like yelling at it and trying to scare it away. Um, and basically at the end of it when they came out when he came out and said to these uh you know like uh park rangers what he had done they were like i'm so shocked that that bear did not kill you because you basically did everything wrong <laughs> in terms of like how to scare it off and what to do when you see a bear so yes he was clearly very lucky in all of these situations but i think that gives you a bit of an idea as to who he is you know he's very yeah tough loves loves to to explore to climb loves to take risks and now i'm going to do a very long quote uh, from the book which i think helps it helps explain his ethos but i quite liked it as a quote because i thought it really helped to explain the ethos of many of the stories that we've done where people do go out on these kind of to me very risky very scary activities that they they enjoy doing so sorry it's very long but i think it uh really gives the it, yeah it gives a lot of context so it says over the course of the winter i learned about the concept of deep play wherein a person's recreational pursuits carry a gross imbalance of risk and reward Without the potential for any real or perceived external gain, fortune, glory, fame, a person puts himself into scenarios of real risk and consequence purely for internal benefit, fun and enlightenment. Deep play exactly described my winter solo 14er project, especially when I would begin a climb by heading into a storm, accepting malevolent weather as part of my experience on that trip. Suffering, cold, nausea, exhaustion, hunger, none of it meant anything. It was all part of the experience. The same went for joy, euphoria, achievement and fulfilment too. I found that I could not set out with the intent of having a particular, a particular experience, safety precautions and risk management aside. My goal instead was to be open to what the day was giving me and accept it. Expectations generally led to disappointment, but being open to whatever there was for me to discover led to awareness and delight, even when conditions were rough. 
Mark Dwight, an American alpinist with an extraordinary history of success and misadventure at the most extreme level of mountaineering, wrote in a climbing essay, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Precisely. So yeah, I just really liked that quote. I thought that it was very, um, it summarised it very well in terms of not getting benefit and potentially in some cases not getting, not getting like highs and lows but just just go you just got to go for it you just got to go and get out there and it's it's often not fun at the time but it is fun for for people that enjoy doing these activities so yeah i thought that was a, a nice way of explaining it so now to april 26 2003 uh aaron had been on a trip uh to central eastern utah an area that was very beautiful, had lots of uh, parks and canyons as part of it. And he had done a few adventure days in the surrounding areas in the Mays District. But today he decided that he was going to drive his truck to the trailhead. Then he was going to go on his mountain bike to the entrance of Blue John Canyon. He was then going to descend into the canyon, cut across it and then back out, go back to the bike and then ride it back to the car. So it was a day trip that he had planned. Uh, it would be 30 miles in total. So it was a big, a big, long adventure, but it was it was due to just take just take the day. And usually when he uh, did go out uh, on his adventures, he did he did the tip that we always talk about, which is he normally would leave a very detailed itinerary with uh, his friends and his family in terms of what he was going to do, what his plans were, everything like that. But unfortunately, in this case, he had originally planned to do something else, uh, but then his friends had called off that trip at the last minute. So he didn't really know what he was going to do. So he ended up just leaving a note saying, Utah with his friends uh, so clearly not very specific um, in terms of, of where he was going because he was doing it just for the day he packed a light bag uh, he didn't want to carry too much he was doing a lot of riding a lot of climbing uh, he took a couple of gallons of water in a bottle and in like a camel pack uh, some chocolate bars muffins burritos uh, and then uh, alongside that all of his climbing gear so a lot of climbing gear he took an old multi-tool, which had a knife and some pliers on it, and then a CD player, a digital camera, and a digital camcorder to document what he was doing. So he goes off, does his cycle successfully, and he locks his bike to itself so that it's ready for him when he gets out of the canyon. And actually, when he starts entering the canyon, he happens to run into two other people, two women that were doing a hike. Uh, they were called Christy and Megan. Uh, and they end up hiking together for for a good amount of time. You know, they explore, they chat. Uh, and eventually, uh, they get to the fork where the two women are going to turn off. And the two women are like, oh, Aaron, like, come and, you know, go back. Let's go back to the campsite, have a beer kind of thing. But Aaron was like, no, I really want to keep going. And he tried to convince them to carry on, but they refused. Uh, but they did agree that they would try and meet up later that evening once Aaron had finished off his extra extra exploring uh, and then go on another hike the day after. So at this point, Aaron carries on into the canyon and he does a really a big mix of, like I say, climbing and then rappelling down the big slots. So using using all the ropes that he brought with him and he eventually makes it into a narrow canyon where there is something called a chalk stone. So if you think of like a narrow canyon, you've got the two walls of the canyon either side of you and you're in the middle. Um, and it's quite a quite a thin canyon. Uh, a chalk stone is then some, which is a, is a stone which is wedged between the two walls. So it's a big boulder in the middle that's wedged between the two rock walls. 
And this is quite common just because of how uh, canyons form. Sometimes when they form, there might be uh, big bits of rock that break off and then fall down further into the canyon. It might be that the boulders might be of a different type of stone. And so uh, Aaron carries on down this canyon and he sees this chalk stone and he goes, okay, it's kind of halfway down. So he does what I what I explained earlier, he does that chimney technique uh, and chimneys down wedging between the two walls. And then he gets onto the boulder and he basically decides, well, if he can stand on the boulder, then basically he can then lower himself down. So then sit on the boulder and then basically hang off it and then drop himself to the floor below. Uh, so it's not, you know, the, the canyon itself wasn't high enough or deep enough for him to need to repel into it. But it meant that, you know, he could get down to this boulder, sit on the boulder, hang off it, think about I think he says like climbing off a roof you know so then you hang up you know you drop or climbing out of a, out of a window you hang onto the window ledge with your hands and then you drop yourself down so he does this he gets onto the the chalk stone and when he stands on it it kind of wobbles a bit which um is a bit of a worry and he goes onto his so he sits on it and he goes onto his stomach on the boulder to then hang off of it but as he grasps onto the rock, kind of hanging off it, he can feel the rock moving, which is obviously not a good, not a good thing. This is a giant boulder, uh, and so what he does is he immediately jumps off the chalk stone. But the problem is, is that the stone is now loose. He's managed to dislodge it from the two walls, uh, and so what happens is the chalk stone. He's on the floor, but the chalk stone is now falling, and he puts his hands above his head in order to shield himself. And then I'll read exactly what happens next. The rock smashes my left hand against the south wall. My eyes register the collision and I yank my arm back, my left arm back as the rock ricochets. The boulder then crushes my right hand and ensnares my right arm at the wrist. Palm in, thumb up, fingers extended. The rock slides another foot down the wall with my arm in tow, tearing the skin off the lateral side of my forearm. Then silence. So hopefully that makes sense. He basically, yeah, had his hands up. The chalk stone whacked against one of his hands and he managed to pull it through. But then that ricocheted it against his other hand. His other hand got stuck behind the rock. The rock then continued down with his hand behind it and wedged his hand between the rock and the wall. So as soon as this happens, he realized that his arm is very much stuck uh, and he cannot pull it out. So he tries, you know, he has immediate panic at this point. I've got to get my arm out. I've got to get my arm out. And he knows that the best time to do these things, to move rocks, to, to do something kind of heroic or painful is at this very exact moment because the adrenaline's pumping. You know, he's very much like ready. He's got to get out. So he actually pulls and pushes as much as he can and he actually does manage to get the, the rock to move which is a very impressive even you know in itself just a tiny bit because the rock is ginormous and he but he ends up hurting his leg in doing that and and there's no way that the rock is actually going to come off his his arm altogether um and so he uh yeah then gives up at this point, he grabs his water bottle because he's just done this big exertion uh, and he has three large mouthfuls of this water before then going, oh God, why have I done that? Because conserving his water is actually going to be the most important thing that he can do uh, in this scenario. So now here he is, he's stuck. He's at the bottom of this uh, canyon uh, with his arm stuck behind the boulder uh, and just the equipment that he brought in with him. 
So yeah, very much not a not a good place to be, right? Like this is this yes. I mean this whole this whole story, to be honest, is a story of how I would not survive. Um, but <laughs> he does. Spoiler. Uh, so yeah, I think it's it's all very impressive. So at this point, he basically kind of you know steals himself. He takes stock of where he is, what's happened, calms down, and goes right. I really need to calm down. I really need to think about what's happening, what's going on, what what can I do next? How am I going to get out of this? So at this point, he goes, right, I've really got to conserve my water. He was in the desert, but he was deep in the ravine. So he was in he was in some shade. You know, it was cooler where he was. So he wasn't, you know, of danger of being like directly out in the sun kind of baking. Uh, he was in, in a safe position. But obviously, we all need water to, to survive. Uh, so he knew that he needed to conserve his water uh, to, to allow him to, to live as long as possible. And so at this point, he, you know, looks at looks at everything around him and he goes, right, I've got three options for getting out of here. One, chip off enough of the rock so that he can get his hand out. So chip off the rock so that then he can slide his hand out from uh, from where it was. Two, move the rock. So move the rock somehow, potentially using like ropes to 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 pulley it uh, and to, to get it to move. Um, or number three, chop his arm off. Uh, but at this point, he was like, well, point three is never going to happen. I only have this like small dull knife. No way I'm ever going to be able to chop my arm off with that. Uh, so so that's not going to go ahead. There, as you might think, there is, there is an option for, which is get found by someone and rescued. But uh, as I said, no one knew he was there. No one was waiting for him. Technically, the girls that he met, the women he met earlier did make plans with him but they'd only just met him right so if he's not going to turn up to one of their parties they're not going to send a search search and rescue thing after him are they it's 2003 so we're talking you know pre pre phones pre all of that fun stuff uh so really what he thinks is that in in the time it's going to take him to die from dehydration so he estimated he had about three days in him uh with the water that he had uh, by the time he died from dehydration, that would that would then only be the time that people would start wondering and looking for him, which meant that yeah, clearly he he wasn't going to be found before he died. So that was very stressful, obviously. So he, stick, he then takes stock of of what he's got. He's got he has got some food. He's got a little bit amount of water. He thinks that he can. Yeah, like I say, realistically lasts about three days before he dehydration de- dehydrates and dies. So he starts getting into action. Uh, so first of all, he decides that he needs to try the the option one, which is to try and file the rock away uh, and and able to get his hand out. So he takes his small multi tool, which happens to have a file on it, has a blunt knife on it, and he starts trying to chip the rock away around where his hand is. Um, but due to how the chalk stone is lying, if basically it was it was lying with like gravity pushing it down onto his hand. So what it meant that even if he did manage to actually chip some stone away, every time he chipped the stone away, the rock would just fall more onto the hand. It wouldn't, you know, it, it's not like it's 
supporting itself in another way. It was supporting itself where it was trapping his hand. So even if he chopped it, it would never, it it, it wouldn't release it. Basically, it just wasn't going to work. But he did try. He did. He did chip away as much as he could. He did it for hours. Um, but it's really hard. He has really bad tools. the The stone itself is a very hard stone, uh, so it it it's really difficult for him. And so he does manage to actually chip off a, a tiny bit of rock. Uh, but then he basically says, "Well, in the amount of time it's taken me to chip off that tiny bit of rock, I'm never going to be able to chip off enough rock in order to get my arm out. So this is a bit pointless." And he does, you know, over the over the 127 hours, he does occasionally keep chipping uh, anyway, just to, to see if he can kind of get there and also to just keep him warm. But yeah, it was definitely something that wasn't going to work. As time passed, uh, the night fell uh, and it was, like I said, it was warm in the day, but at night it did get cold. Uh, but it wasn't cold enough to hit him with hypothermia, but definitely cold enough to not be enjoyable. Uh, and so he tried to keep himself warm by by moving, by chipping the rock, like I said. Uh, but he does eventually use some of the materials from his backpack to, to keep him a bit warmer. So he uses his backpack, like the fabric in it. And he ends up taking all of his like climbing ropes out and then like winding them around his legs to try and, you know, make like thick, thick rope trousers to try and keep keep him warm. But because of like how his arm is, he can't sit down at this point and he can't sleep. Uh, and he actually, I think it's pretty fair to say, he, I don't think he slept really at all uh, through this whole thing. So he stays awake for days. So as as time passes over the next few days, like I say, he does keep chipping away as much as he can. He did also attempt to chip the wall that maybe like the wall behind his hand so that he could then then do it that way but when he did do that he basically almost dropped he he did drop his knife but thankfully it was within reaching distance of him being able to grab it with his foot but i mean that would have been a nightmare right if he had if he had lost his knife so he decided to not do that he does attempt option two which is to use some of the ropes that he had and try and rig them up around the chalk stone and then use like leverage from above in order to to leverage the rock out of the way and he does set it up he does manage to do quite a lot with that but it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't doesn't allow the the rock to move but what it does manage is it actually uh, allows him to fashion a seat so he can sit down. So he sets up all these ropes so that they have have tension and then he puts his harness on and then he's actually able to sit down uh, from where he is, which is obviously a bit of a relief after after standing for so long. Uh, but unfortunately, it's he can kind of only sit for 15 minutes because then after that point, it kind of starts cutting off the circulation in his legs. So it's not as though he can just sit and sleep. He kind of has to alternate between sitting and standing. There's just no comfortable position. As the days go on, he obviously uses his water. So he's rationing it, you know, only a sip every few hours just to see how long he could could keep it going for over this time. You know, he's becoming really gaunt. He's losing like lots of weight because his body is just absorbing all the water that it can from himself uh, but what he does decide to do is he decides to start capturing his his urine because especially at the beginning when he is quite hydrated uh, the the urine will will still have water content within within it uh, but over the days as it gets more concentrated then 
obviously less less water for him to drink but so he does he does capture his urine quite quite early on and he knows that he could drink that as as a last resort after his water runs out and so he stores that and yeah it's just kind of awful really so days pass he can't sleep he starts to hallucinate quite a lot because why wouldn't you at that point uh you know slowly dehydration heat stress all of it coming through he does a lot of kind of weird hallucinations like you know imagining being released imagining things kind of jumping out of him Uh, and there's lots of that in the in the film eventually his water does run out uh, and he starts drinking uh, the urine so then it comes to to kind of thinking about chopping his arm off right because we've tried option one we've tried option two what about option three so he starts to think okay if i am going to chop my arm off what what does this look like what what is this plan going to be and it's and it's funny because he knows that and at this point you know as the days pass his hand is dying right because it's not got any blood going to it because it's trapped so he knows his hand is dead like then that hand is not going to survive and to be honest, if I've if I've watched enough medical emergency programs to know about Crush Syndrome and about how if he did end up getting rescued there, they were one hundred percent would have done the amputation anyway, right? Like that hand is not going anywhere. That hand's gone. So knowing that, I think is a bit a bit helpful um, in terms of you know it's not as though there's other options here. Like that hand is always going to have to go by this point. So therefore, they they can chop it off, but they're not going to get there. Uh, or you could chop it off. So, questionable. So yes, he, he starts thinking about it, of, of what he would do. And he basically thinks, right, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to obviously need a tourniquet, um, a tourniquet, whatever you prefer. Uh, and so he manages to make a tourniquet from, he has some like inner tube in his backpack that he can wrap around his arm. And then he uses uh, like a carabiner, like a clip from his climbing gear to 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 turn it so you know wrap the tube around then you know like when you almost like when you wring something out you know you 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 put it you can put a stick in it and then you can turn the stick to to tighten whatever the the thing is rather than just pulling it so uh he manages to do that so he's like right this is pretty good uh he makes a bit of a plan in terms of the with the tourniquet he then will still need something to absorb all of the blood. So he uh, makes a plan where he can use, he had some bike shorts that had like padding in them so that that padding could could be used to uh, to stop the bleeding, to help pad out the bottom of, of where he cut it up. He makes a plan around how he will then use, like adjust his backpack. So as soon as he's done it, he can then basically like wrap his arm up in his backpack uh, and then attack, you know, kind of like wrap it to himself so that his arm is now, you know, like close to his body and being protected uh, in order to, to let him to let him out. So he has, a, he has a plan, which is, you know, impressive at this point, more than I would have done. But actually he takes his dull knife and he kind of tries to like chop at his arm, right? He like like takes the knife, whacks it against his skin, chop, chop, you know, tries to cut back and forth and the knife doesn't even pierce his skin. So it doesn't, it literally doesn't even cut him. Uh, this knife is so dull. And so at this point he goes, like, look, this clearly isn't an option. I've not got anything that's, you know, good enough in order to break, uh, get chop my arm off. It's just not going to happen. So he gives up on that idea. However, over over the time period, eventually at some point, 
in frustration and fear and all this kind of stuff, he basically grabs the knife and just stabs his arm with it. Just like fully stab, point down into the arm. And surprisingly, that works, right? So he stabs himself and he... Uh, the arm goes in, the, the knife goes into his arm and it cuts through the muscle. But then the knife hits his bone and he goes, right, well, there's no way that this knife is going to be able to hit, cut off this bone, right? It's just not going to happen. And so he gives up again. He goes, right, clearly, step two, still also not going to happen. So in a, in a, in a tricky place. I mean, I like to hope, obviously this is all like, like exceptionally painful, but I would just assume that by this point, you are very tired. You know, you're hallucinating. You're not with it. I wonder if pain is almost like it will be there, but it's it is it's something different. Do you know what I mean? By this point, it's like what what is pain? What is anything? What what is reality? Right. So I I hope that that is the case because actually, as you read his his retelling re- of this, he doesn't focus on pain at all. As there is one comment of it, which I'll talk about later, but it, it really doesn't. It's never really about about pain, which is what I would be scared of, is how agonizing it would be. But that just doesn't seem to register. And I think maybe that is it. When you're like this close to death, it, it just becomes not, not, not as much of an issue. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, time, time continues to pass. Uh, he drank all of his water, all of his urine. Water has run out. And through all of this, he has his camcorder with him and he's recording himself as he goes. He's recording himself saying goodbye, you know, making making plans for, for who has his stuff and all that kind of stuff, saying goodbye to his family. Uh, he scratches his name into the rock as to who he is and, and you know, what to do. But then after, after 125 hours, <laughs> it suddenly comes to him how he's going to get out. And the answer is not to saw through his arm. The answer is to break his arm. Because if his arm is broken, he doesn't need to saw through it. But how do you break an arm? And he just can't believe that he never thought about this. He just can't believe he never thought that he would have to break his own arm in order to do this. He always thought he was going to have to saw through it. And when I thought this, like I said, I hadn't seen the movie or read the book. So in my head... Or I thought I heard that he had to like whack his arm with a rock or something in order to break it. That is not the case. He basically just used the power of physics, um, our favorite, our favorite topic on this podcast, um, and talk. So basically, he just kind of bent his arm all the way backwards and then used his weight against it so that then um, his arm just just snapped basically. So he bent his arm back against the rock, dropped down, uh, pulled it pulled enough from you know opposing forces that uh his arm broke um, and then he did it again for his other arm and again like this sounds so painful right not once in any of this is he saying like oh i'm in agony i've just broken both my arms he's just like cool i broke both my arms then i stuck my my finger in my arm through the stab wound and could feel like yes my arm was broken wonderful off we go so i just think yeah you must just be in such a place by this point that you can do it I don't think I could do it, but I also haven't spent 120 hours trapped behind a rock. I still couldn't do it. (laughs) I don't want to make anyone think that like, oh, of course, of course, after all this time, she'd be capable. Definitely not. I think I would have died by this point because I would have just not even thought about conserving water or doing anything. Anyway. So he is just so excited by this point. He's like, this is it. I've broken the arm. I've broken the arm. 
I've got a knife. I've already stabbed my arm. I just need to chop it off now. I've just got to do the rest of it. And he doesn't even like get his tourniquet out or anything. He just starts like literally like hacking his arm off, um, just sawing at it, you know, and it takes him like the best part of an hour to get through it. Thankfully, he does remember to put his tourniquet on so that he doesn't die of blood loss. Um, and then, yes, the only time where he does mention pain is he says as he's cutting it, he can feel like where there's like a bundle of nerves and he basically leaves that to the end, uh, to near the end. And so he cuts through like the muscle and the skin and all this stuff. Sorry, I should have given some kind of warning at the beginning that this is going to be gory, but surely I've talked enough about self-amputation at the top that you can you can get the gist, right? Um, and so he, yeah, so he leaves that nerve sheath until the end. And then what he did say is that that was like the most, cutting through that nerve sheath was just the most painful, agonizing thing that has ever happened, um, which it sounds like. Uh, and then, yeah, he manages to eventually get through the last kind of tendon and he is free. He is free after 127 hours. Um, he has chopped his arm off and he's free. But it's not not as easy as that, right? Uh, step one, getting free. Now you're in the middle of a canyon, in the middle of a national park, in the middle of nowhere. So he straps his arm up. Like I said, he um, he leaves his hand behind because one, it's disgusting and dead, and two, can't get it out. And he is bleeding, but it's not awful in terms of that. You know, it seems to all be working. It's also so, so dehydrated; it just doesn't have like that thinner blood to bleed. But he clearly knows he needs to find water and he knows where to find it. He knows where to find the water in the canyon. So he's got to go in and get that first. So he manages to take all of his ropes out and tie them together just with the one with the one hand. Uh, and then he has to repel with the one arm down. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that he managed to even successfully do this after everything he'd been through, he managed to do, manages to do something I probably couldn't even do when I was fully fit, which is like repel down a giant cliff uh, with one arm, no sleep, severely dehydrated, you know, probably traumatized, uh, but full of adrenaline. So he, he managed to do it. And so he slowly lowered himself down um, and then he did manage to fall into a, into a giant pool of water. So he drank, just drank and drank and drank at that point, uh, as you can imagine, uh, as much water as he could stomach, gulps it down, just gets as much, much in as he can. And he doesn't, at this point, actually doesn't get sick. He just, just, just drinks and drinks and drinks. Uh, he fills up all of his drinking vessels that he has. So it's his water bottle and his um, camel pack and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he then says, great, you know, ready to go. <laughs> he's in the full light of day at this point, though. So he's probably is still going to get dehydrated in the in the walk that he needs to do. But he just knows he's just going to get as much water as he can and then head out. So after that, uh, his stomach like really turned after he had that drink uh and because as you can imagine he's just like not eaten or drank much so then he and then has poured a load of water in so you know he runs to the loo um and uh yeah uh gets i say runs to the loo runs to you know a patch of grass and not even grass a patch of stone and goes to the toilet 
but he carries on. He knows he's got to he's got to walk. He's got to walk as far as he can. His plan is to try and walk back to the bike, uh, but his bike he has actually lost his bike key through this, so he doesn't know whether the bike's going to work. But he figures he'd walk back to the bike and then hopefully walk back to the car if he needed to. But luckily, there's one patch of luck in this, uh, which is um, he then ran into three people. Uh, there was a Dutch family, so a man, a woman, and their son. Uh, and he basically was like screaming as much as he could with very little voice to be like, help me, help me. I've just chopped off my arm. Please, you've got to help. Uh, but actually, they had been informed that he was that there had there was a man in the park and that the man might need assistance, so to keep an eye out for him. And so that was because by this point, his fam- friends and family had realised that something had gone wrong and he was missing, and so they had then managed to to figure out vaguely where he was based on all these messages that they managed to track down through emails and all this kind of stuff uh, and inform the police and inform the rangers. So they actually, yeah, the, the, the people were like, oh, we didn't really expect to actually see anyone, but we, we knew you were around. Uh, and so basically he says that you've got to go and get help. Like I'm hopefully I'll be able to walk myself out, but I also might not be able to. So, so please. So the, the wife and the son run, run out, uh, and the, the man stays behind, uh, and, and walks with, with Aaron. And he says like the man who walks with him, he says like the man, like the Aaron still walks faster than like most people do normally, even after all of this. Um, and, Aaron told the, the the family to to ask for it to, for them to get a helicopter to him because he knew that that was what he needed in order to get out. But actually, by kind of sure, sheer coincidence, they had already requested a helicopter to the region in order to to help with the search. And so it was only you know a few moments later where actually they started hearing a helicopter. Uh, clearly, before the the wife and the son could have made it to the trailhead to ask for help, um, but yes, it was already on its way. So they managed to flag it down, uh, and the helicopter picked him up. Uh, and apparently, he was just worried that he would bleed on their seats. Uh, but luckily, after all of that, he then managed to yes get picked up by the helicopter. Helicopter took him to hospital, uh, and the hospital did a very good job of patching him up. As you can expect, and this is like such a traumatic experience to go through and to to get through. So it obviously took a lot of recovery to get right after this. A lot of support from his family and his friends and everything like that in order to to, to feel better and to to progress on. But he did. He did get better. He, since this, has now become a motivational speaker. He then did all that climbing. So that 14, the 14 peaks he wanted to do, he did do uh, even, even after he lost his arm. So yeah, he became very, very successful afterwards. And the park rangers did eventually find his arm. You'll be happy to know. Uh, they did try. They actually tried once to get it and failed because they couldn't move it. But eventually, a large team went in with some like hydraulic equipment and managed to move the chalk stone and, and make it make it safer. Uh, and then managed to yeah, get his arm out and and took it took it back. Because <laughs> uh, otherwise, that would be a bit depressing, wouldn't it? If you there was just an arm out there. So yeah, so that's that's the full story, the full 127 hours of, of what happened. Um, it's kind of hard to do what we learned in, in these types of stories. Uh, and reminder, again, tell people where you're going, itineraries, what to do if you don't come back on time, where they should look, etc. Because that would have 
would have saved a lot of stress in this case. Uh, I would say learn some kind of survival skills, which I still haven't, so clearly need to. Uh, and maybe just always make sure you bring a good knife. You never know when you're going to need it. So yeah, so now let's just talk a little bit about references. So obviously, like I said, the two main references are the book and the movie. So the book, the full title is 127 Hours Between a Rock and a Hard Place by Aaron Ralston. I thought the book was very good. Um, It was well written. It kind of alternates between uh, the experience of the hike and the incident uh, kind of flashbacks to to other things that happened in his life at the same time. Um, So, yeah. I, I definitely recommend if you want uh, this type of book to read. Uh, and I didn't find it too. I thought I thought all of this I'd found a bit kind of horrific and well, but um, it, it wasn't. It was it was very very well written. So I recommend that. You may have though have seen the movie, which is called 127 Hours, stars James Franco. Uh, if you're in the UK, it's currently free to watch on all four. Uh, so you can you can give that a go. I thought the movie was all right. Yeah, I mean, it got nominated for a lot of Oscars. It's got very good reviews. I wonder if by the time I watched it, I was just a bit... I'd, I'd just done a lot by that point in terms of reading and learning about the story. So, um, yeah, maybe that's why I didn't I didn't love it. But I, I think a lot of people did. And I yeah, I recommend watching it. I think it's only 90 minutes, so that's quite nice. There's just a lot of like hallucinations and stuff, which I was like, not totally, not totally on with. But anyway have a go with those there's also loads of stuff on youtube um about what happened as well so yes thank you very much for listening uh if you enjoyed this please do uh give me a good rating uh like i say this is going to be the last podcast for a while so um you can still hopefully get me i'll still post every now and again on at when it goes wrong pod on instagram uh, or you can send me an email to when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com